Thanks, John. Well, great that uh, we've been able to explore all of these things as over uh, these last months, and we've sort of got to the end of the line uh, with assurance. Um, hugely important subject uh, theologically, hugely important subject uh, historically as well, and also pastorally. You'll know that many pastoral conversations uh, land in the area of assurance. How do I know that I'm a Christian? I'm full of doubts. Uh, what does that mean for, for me and for God? Now, uh, quite why we are doing assurance tonight, nobody's really quite sure because you'll know that in the academy here, we've been working our way through what we sometimes call the five points of Calvin, uh, articulated at the Synod of Dort. And um, if we were to follow that scheme fully tonight, we would be thinking about the P in tulip, uh, perseverance of the saints. And we do want to say something about that, but assurance is the title that I was given and assurance is the way that we're going to spend most of our time uh, looking at tonight. But these two doctrines are, are pretty closely linked um, uh, and, and we'll see something of that and it's referenced in your handout as we go through. So what's assurance? Let's think about some definitions first of all. Assurance is a believer's confidence that he or she is in a right standing with God that will lead ultimately to salvation, to final salvation. A couple of, of quotes here, I'm trying to give you the quotes just on the handouts. Uh, John Murray says, uh, the assurance entertained by a believer that he is in a state of grace and salvation, the knowledge that he's been saved, has passed from death into life, has become a professor of eternal life, and is an heir of glory. Sinclair Ferguson, a little bit fuller. Assurance is the conscious confidence that we are in a right relationship with God through Christ. It is the confidence that we've been justified and accepted by God in Christ, regenerated by his spirit and adopted into his family. And that through faith in him, we will be kept for the day when our justification and adoption are consummated in the regeneration of all things. Now, we're going to use the confession quite a wee bit tonight um, because it summarizes the reform position on assurance very, very well. And I put it on the back of your handout and you're going to be flicking back and forward to the confession fairly often uh, uh, this evening. Assurance is a doctrine, we'll see uh, in a moment, but assurance is a doctrine that came to the fore, particularly in the Reformation. Uh, and then it, it developed and had a particular emphasis in uh, the thinking of the Puritans and the Westminster Confession in many ways is the sort of the distilled teaching of the Puritans on this subject. So whenever we're, we're thinking about Puritan theology on, on, on assurance, the Westminster Confession is sort of the greatest statement of that in many ways. And the Confession says, if you go to the sort of the second uh, part of uh, chapter 18, uh, paragraph one, such as truly believe in the Lord Jesus and love him in sincerity, endeavoring to walk in all good conscience before him, may in this life be certainly assured that they are in the state of grace and may rejoice in the hope of the glory of God, which hope shall never make them ashamed. So, so you can see that whenever we're talking about assurance, it's got a present reference and a future reference. It is saying, I, I, I know that I am right with God now, 
and I know that he will keep me to the end. I know that I am saved and that I will be saved. That present and future reference, that's quite important. We'll come back to that too. Well, what about the perseverance of the saints? We said that these two things were closely linked uh, and uh, in some ways, uh, assurance is the sort of the experiential application of the perseverance of the saints. In actual fact, the, the confession has these two chapters uh, together. First of all, chapter 17, perseverance of the saints, and then a, a assurance in chapter 18, indicating that one is the outworking of the other. And, and uh, now, here's the question. You see, we may know that we're Christians here today, this evening, that we're in a state of grace, but how can we have confidence that we will not fall away tomorrow? Well, we know because ultimately God promises to carry on his work in us. So we haven't put this in the handout, but, oh, sorry, I have put this in the handout in, in uh, Westminster Confession 17, a, a chapter, or chapter 17, paragraph 1. You see what it says about perseverance. They whom God hath accepted in his beloved, effectually called and sanctified by his Spirit, can neither totally nor finally fall away from the state of grace, but shall certainly persevere therein to the end and be eternally saved. So, very clear, if you're a Christian, you will endure to the end. We sometimes shorthand this by saying, once saved, always saved. That, that's that's uh, maybe it's overly simplistic, but, but it, it maybe captures something. And the confession goes on to point out that this does not depend ultimately upon us, but upon God. Now, in many ways, the perseverance of the saints, which uh, we could spend uh, a really profitable evening looking at, but in many ways, the perseverance of the saints is an outworking of the other four points of Calvin that we have looked at. It is the logical conclusion of them. In other words, those who are totally uh, depraved, those who are, are lost and without hope, whom God unconditionally elects, those whom Christ purchases, and those whom the Holy Spirit uh, calls, those are kept by the power of God so that none shall be lost. There, there's a sort of a logical progression there. But it's not only logical, it's also scriptural. Now, I've given some references here. I was too cheap on the paper to print out an extra page. So uh, if you want to look these up, you can. Uh, but here they are. I'll read them as well. These wonderful words from Jesus in John chapter 6, uh, from verse 37. <clears throat> All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me, and this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose none of all that he has given me. So there's Jesus saying, I'm doing the Father's will, and, and this is the, the will of the Father, that I should lose none of those that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. So it is God's will that none of those that he has given to Christ uh, will perish. And Christ has come to do the Father's will, so he says none will be cast out. 
Philippians 1 verse 6. And I am sure of this, Paul says, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. He began the work. We've, we've been seeing that over these weeks. The whole thrust of what we've been seeing is that salvation is of the Lord, is his initiative. And he will complete the work. That's our, our confidence. That's the confidence of the teaching of the perseverance of the saints. Romans 8, uh, 29 and 30. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that they might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Sometimes called those verses the golden chain, this unbreakable chain of salvation, the, 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 the steps that God takes as he brings us to himself. And if you ask us, in a sense, where are we in that experience, in that chain? Well, tonight we are, if we're Christians, we are between those who are justified and those who will be glorified in heaven. But as Paul describes that here, he describes it in the past tense. Those he justified, he also glorified. In other words, it's so certain that God will certainly do this, that we can talk about it as already having happened. And there are many, many other places that we could go. So, so because God promises to keep all who come to Christ, assurance becomes possible because ultimately my being a Christian tomorrow depends on God's intention and not on mine, ultimately. Now, before we leave perseverance, and we do need to move on from this, but before we leave perseverance, we need to ask about those uh, passages in the Bible that imply that believers can fall away. And, we might add, we need to think about those experiences that we have had with people who have the appearance of being, at one point, keen Christians, and then we find that they go on to abandon the faith. And I'm sure we can think of examples in our own lives. And some of these may be uh, painful and, and, and personal examples, friends and so on. Now, now, we don't have time to go into this in great detail. We might want to talk about it um, afterwards in the question time. But the confession recognizes the reality of a false profession. And, and therefore a false assurance. And that's how the chapter on assurance actually opens. You'll notice that in a Westminster Confession, chapter 18, paragraph 1, it begins, Although hypocrites and other unregenerate men may vainly deceive themselves with false hopes and carnal presumptions of being in the favor of God and the state of salvation, which hope of theirs shall perish. So there's a, such a thing, according to the Confession, as a false profession. And it is the, the, the reality and the existence of a false profession that explains both some of the experiences that happen around us, but also some of these challenging passages. So, for example, Matthew 7, uh, 21. Not everyone, Jesus speaking, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. 
On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many works, many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Now, this is a very challenging passage, uh, disturbing in some ways. Uh, those Jesus is speaking of who are eventually lost, they appear to have no awareness that their profession is false. They are also effective, uh, active in service. They are prophesying and casting out demons and doing mighty works. And we could add that they're effective in service too, by some measure at least, and yet they are not known by the Lord. And, and so a, a false profession, I think we can say by implication, a false profession can be hard to spot. And someone with a false profession can easily deceive others, but also even themselves. Now that's uh, quite a thought. So there's a, a, a passage like that. There's also a passage like, First John uh, two nineteen. They went out with uh, from us. Sorry, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they are not of us. The people John writes of uh, here were part of the church, and they don't seem to have been obviously unconverted while they were part of the church. It was their going out from the church that made that clear. And we could add into that perhaps the parable of the sower with the, the various seeds that sprout but that don't produce fruit. Uh, and then also, of course, we could add into that famously the, the character of uh, Judas. So, so how do we explain those who profess but ultimately depart the faith? Well, we explain it, now let's make sure we hear this, we explain it not by saying that they lost something that they had, but by saying they did not have what they originally appeared to have. I'll say that again. We explain it not by saying they lost something that they had, but by saying they did not have what they originally appeared to have. So that, that's something on the perseverance of the saints. And, and you see that, that it, it really sort of underpins especially a future hope of assurance. Okay, what about history? How, how does this doctrine uh, sit down through uh, history? It's, it's been debated. It came into a sharp focus at the Reformation. Uh, the Catholic Church at the time taught that assurance was not possible except to a few individuals by special, in special circumstances by special revelation. It was thinking particularly of Paul. It was how uh, the Catholic Church understood Paul's uh, assurance that he would be in heaven. He, they said that, well, that was special. Paul was special, and this was specially communicated to him by God. Uh, and you see that, that in, the, in the doctrine of justification by faith alone, in Christ alone, what happens, of course, is that the final verdict over one standing with God is given to us here in the present. And therefore, you see, assurance becomes possible. And that put the Protestant understanding of assurance on a collision course with Rome. And so Cardinal Robert Bellarmine 
uh, who was uh, Pope Clement VIII's personal theologian, one of the most able figures of the Counter-Reformation, said, the greatest of all Protestant heresies is assurance. It's interesting that we've gathered tonight to look at the greatest of all Protestant heresies. It, it doesn't make such a good flyer, I have to say. And, and we can understand that statement whenever we, we realize that it comes from an understanding from Bellarmine that, that the final verdict on a believer's life remains to be given, that justification is something we have to complete. And, and so from that standpoint, I, I, for a person to claim assurance is, is presumptuous. And just by the way, uh, this is something that we need to understand and bear in mind whenever we're explaining our faith to our Roman Catholic friends. Uh, if we say to them, if they're sort of a classic Catholic and we say to them, well, that we know that we're going to heaven because they understand that that destiny is in some, high, some fashion dependent upon their works, they hear us saying that we are exceptionally good. And if they know us, well, they know that we're not exceptionally good. And so we must understand that, that what we intend to say might not be what is heard. And it comes down to this understanding of uh, assurance. So there's a challenge then from Catholicism. Uh, what about the, the whole Arminian uh, debate? Well, the remonstrant position uh, it was something that expressed uncertainty about perseverance. And this is how it did it. This is the quote from uh, your handout. But whether they, that's true believers, whether true believers are capable through negligence of forsaking again the first beginnings of their life in Christ, of again returning to this present evil world, of turning away from the holy doctrine which was delivered them, of losing a good conscience, of becoming devoid of grace, that must be more particularly determined out of the Holy Scriptures before we ourselves can teach it with the full persuasion of our minds. So they're saying, we're not really sure what the Bible says in this. We're not sure about it. We can't, we can't teach it because it's an open question. And then that led the Synod of Dort in the five points of Calvin to really clarify the security of believers in their statement on perseverance. So they said this, so it is not by their own merits or strength, but by God's undeserved mercy that they neither forfeit faith and grace totally nor remain in their downfalls to the end and are lost. With respect to themselves, this not only easily could happen, but also undoubtedly would happen. But with respect to God, it cannot possibly happen. So you see how sure they were on that. Wesley came along and he followed that sort of Arminian position. He said that, that uh, assurance was possible here and now, but it wasn't possible to know that you would have salvation tomorrow. So he said that, that, that the present acceptance by God only, assurance was limited to the present acceptance by God only, and that there can be no present assurance of persevering. That doesn't sound tremendously assured. It's a sort of a half assurance. I, I'm okay now, but I can't really be sure about tomorrow. T -t tomorrow depends to some level on, on me. And, and, and those of you who, who might be a, a wee bit more up to date with some of the recent debates in Pauline theology and this whole sort of new perspective on Paul that speaks about our responsibility to stay in as God's people, I think that also robs 
us of the ability to have assurance beyond today. And that's not the sort of assurance that Reformed Christians have traditionally talked about, and I don't think really the sort of assurance that the Bible holds out to us. So that's history. What about this question of the essence of the faith? Stafford raised it, I think, uh, last time. The chief debate in the Reformed Church as to be, has been as to whether assurance is of the essence of the faith. In other words, does faith in Christ necessarily bring assurance? Uh, Calvin uh, certainly went a fair bit down that road, but, but sort of admitted that we might be beset by doubts. And, and what's sometimes suggested is that as Reformed teaching developed on from Calvin and, and so on, that that, that that sort of necessary link was downplayed and, and the possibility of being a, a true Christian with no assurance became uh, very much more uh, realistic. Now, the distinction has probably been overplayed and uh, can be attributed to differences in emphasis and the kind of assurance that's being spoken of. But in any case, by the time we get to the, the Westminster Confession, we see this very wise statement in the confession that, that allows maybe a little bit of latitude of views to come under its umbrella. So you look at a, a paragraph three of the, the confession over the back of the page. This infallible insurance does not so belong to the essence of faith, but that a true believer may wait long. In other words, it might take some time to develop. That a true believer might wait long and conflict with many difficulties before he be a partaker of it. Yet being enabled by the Spirit to know the things which are freely given him of God, he may without extraordinary revelation, that's against the Catholic position, he may without extraordinary revelation in the right use of ordinary means attain thereunto. So it's saying it might be normal to be sure that you're a Christian, but at the same time, that may take some time to develop, and you can be a Christian without being absolutely sure about it. This seems to be the situation that John is addressing in his letter whenever he, he writes to believers in order that they might know that they have eternal life. Now, that's got very significant uh, pastoral and practical uh, uh, applications. We will probably uh, talk about that after tea. Uh, you know, if somebody says to us, look, I'm really not sure that I'm a Christian, we, we don't have to immediately assume that they're not a Christian. We, we can say, well, this could be a, a genuine believer who just struggles with assurance. And the confession then goes on to say how assurance can be cultivated, not through a special revelation, but through the right use of ordinary means. Those are the means that God has given us to grow the word and prayer and sacraments and the fellowship of believers. And actually, whenever the Puritans uh, thought about the means of grace in these areas, they had the word, the prayer, sacraments and afflictions, would you believe? as the ways that God has provided for our growth. What about the grounds of assurance then? What does assurance rest on for its confidence? Now, again, this is a hugely practical question. And it's important to say that, that what we're not talking about here are the grounds of salvation. We know that the grounds of salvation are the, the finished work of Christ. We're, we're talking about the grounds of assurance. What, what does our assurance rest on? What do we look to for assurance? And, and both the Synod of Dort and Westminster identified broadly the, the same grounds of assurance. So uh, this is 
Westminster Confession, paragraph 2 here. This certainty is not a bare conjecture and probable persuasion grounded upon a fallible hope, but an infallible assurance of faith founded upon the divine truth of the promises of salvation. The inward evidence of those graces under which these promises are made the testimony of the spirit of adoption, witnessing with our spirits that we are the children of God, which spirit is the earnest of our inheritance, whereby we are sealed to the day of redemption. So you can see that there are, there are three grounds of assurance. There are the divine promises, the evidences of grace, and the testimony of the spirit. So we're going to think about these. Divine promises, this is maybe the more straightforward one. The, 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 the Puritans and, and, and Christians generally, I think, have said in practical terms, this is the most important. It, it is objective. It is, it, so we're, we're trusting what, what God says. It is objective. It is outside of ourselves. It does not change. God, God has said certain things in his word about his willingness to save us and to keep us. There, there are, I didn't have to confess, I didn't count these, but there are over 3,000 promises apparently in Scripture along these lines. 3,000 times in which God speaks about his intention to, to save and to keep. Promises like, as we've seen in John chapter 6, whoever comes to me I will never cast out. And, and, and that, you know, if you're having a, a good day or a bad day, that just stays the same, doesn't it? Promises like Romans 8 verse 1, there is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And as I say, those, those things just don't change. There's the promises. Then there are some secondary grounds. Now, now in the confession, they're, they're, they're just listed in all the same, uh, sort of one after the other, but, but sort of wise pastors at least have, have said that, that there's a primary ground in, in, the, in, the, uh, in the promises, and then there are these sort of secondary uh, grounds that are slightly different. They're, they're the evidences and the testimony of the Spirit. Let's think about those. So, so the evidence of, of, of grace, this is talking about personal growth. Is there, is there evidence in your life? You know, Paul preaches in front of Agrippa. We were looking at it recently. Uh, and uh, he says, I preach to the, the, to the Gentiles that they should uh, repent and, and trust in Christ and prove their repentance by their deeds. Is there evidence of sanctification? Is there, is there change in terms of the things that we love and the things that we hate? And, and 1 John is the great letter on assurance. And, and in some ways, 1 John particularly focuses on this question, on the evidences. Is there evidence in your life that you're a believer? It talks about the various tests, you know, the obedience test. Are you obeying God's word? The love test. Do you love the brothers and sisters in, in, your, in your Christian community? Very much the evidences. Now, now, we know that this is subjective to some degree, isn't it? And sometimes whenever we get into trouble and we start to fill ourselves full of doubts, it's these things that we say, oh, I just don't see that I'm changing. We might want to talk about that afterwards in our questions because sometimes we don't see things the way that 
other people uh, see them in our lives. Evidences. And then the third here is the, the testimony of the Spirit. And, and this is also subjective. Uh, it refers to a particular work of the Spirit of God, reminding us that we're children of God and therefore assures us of our salvation. Now, now it might be easy to read this and sort of think, well, this is, this is just talking about our feelings. And, and it's, it's what was referred to in Romans 8, 16. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And it's been very hard to to really figure out what, what Paul is saying there. It's one of the most difficult of the grounds to articulate. And the confession was written very carefully here to, to keep a number of different groups on board. Uh, one group really didn't think there was a third ground. They really thought that it was the Spirit that helped us examine our lives, examine the evidences. So, for example, we, we might say, now, Lord, I'm not really you know, sure if I'm a Christian, is there evidence in my life? And we would go, well, no, I know that the scripture tells me that, that I need to love God's people. And we would, we would, we would look at our lives, as it were, from, from a, almost an external standpoint. So, well, can you see the evidence in your heart that, that you love God's people? And you go, well, actually, I do think I do. And, and the Spirit comes along and testifies with our spirit that we're not deceiving ourselves, that we're right. And there were some people in the Westminster gathering, that, that really thought that that was what that referred to. It was the, the Spirit helping us evaluate the evidences. But then there was another group, and, and they agreed with that. They said that that definitely happens, but, but there's something else. There are times when the Holy Spirit will come and particularly press a part of God's Word into our lives or hearts. Give us a sense that this is really for us. It's not... Maybe something that we expect all of the time. It might be a very rare thing. And, and they were careful to, to say that, that though it was a, a direct and an experiential thing, it, it should never overshadow trust in the promises or, or even the evidences. But it was sometimes something that God used to really encourage us to know that we were children of God. And the confession was written in such a way as to, to allow those people and the people that thought that that didn't really happen to sort of come together. As this bond of unity. Now, again, I want to underline that we should see these grounds as as sort of primary and secondary. It, it is the promises of God. It is what God has done and says He will do. That is the the primary ground for our assurance. In fact, some of the the, the Puritans talked about the fact that. God was most glorified as we found assurance in the promises alone that we didn't, we, we, we almost didn't need to look at the other things because, because that was us trusting almost in the, in the bare word of, of God. So the, 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 the promises, because they are external and objective, are the primary ground and are to be emphasized more than the others. And, and I think it's true, and we will know this in our own lives, that, that whenever we, we, we struggle with assurance, it's sometimes because we are placing too much emphasis on the subjective grounds for our assurance. I just don't feel like I'm a Christian today, rather than on the objective promises. Well, that brings us to our Next area, struggling with assurance. Struggling with assurance. Why do um, Christians struggle with assurance? Well, the Reformed teaching on assurance is, is wonderfully pastoral. 
And, and it, it says that, that, you know, assurance should be normal and desirable. It's God's intention for us. But it also recognizes that there are times when genuine believers really struggle. And the confession gives us an understanding of that in that final paragraph, number four. True believers may have the assurance of their salvation diverse ways shaken, diminished, and intermitted as by negligence in preserving of it, by falling into some special sin which woundeth the conscience and grieveth the spirit, by some sudden or vehement temptation, by God's withdrawing the light of his countenance and suffering even such as fear him to walk in darkness and to have no light. So four reasons why a assurance will be shaken or diminished, neglect, Sin, violent temptation, and the withdrawal of God. Again, let's take a moment just to think about these. Neglect. There is a responsibility on the believer to use the ordinary means that God has given us, we've referred to those, to pursue him. And if we fail to do that, then it is unreasonable to expect that our sense of assurance will not be affected. We are, the Bible tells us, to make every effort to make our calling and election sure. And if we don't make every effort, then the sure bit is going to be a struggle for us. So neglect. Sin. When we sin, not this time by neglect, but more willfully, then we would understand also that our assurance will be affected. In some ways it should be. Violent temptation. Now, now, that's a particularly focused attack, as it were, of the evil one. Maybe it's what happened to David as he experienced the temptation that led to his affair with Bathsheba. You get the sense as you read that story that things happened sort of out of the blue and really quite quickly. And it might be, at least at the beginning, and it might be that some mysterious providence allows... Satan to tempt us or assault us more than might normally be the case. Job might be an example of that. And maybe in that case, our assurance is, it's just everything in our lives just comes tumbling down. We, 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 we go in a certain direction. We thought, I never thought I would do that. And our assurance is affected. Violent temptation. And then this, the withdrawal of God. Now, this is a surprise perhaps to us. But there seem to be times when, when God withholds the sense of his presence for reasons that are not altogether clear. And, and this again uh, may have been experienced by Job, perhaps. Some of our forefathers would have experienced what they, they would have called the, or would have spoken about what they, they would have called the dark night of the soul. R.C. Sproul says this, he says the dark night of a soul is a depression that is linked to a crisis of faith, a crisis that comes when one senses the absence of God or gives rise to a feeling of abandonment by him. And there are many stories of, of wonderful Christian servants who have just lost all sense of the presence or favor of God in their lives. And, and, and even as we say this, we need to point out that this uh, mysteriously somehow remains under the umbrella of God's 
loving and fatherly care and, and still is there for somehow ultimately for our good. There's a mystery in that, isn't there? But, but it may result perhaps in an increased yearning for God, a, a trust in God despite what I feel like, a, an obedience to God just because God is God's. Now, none of this is to say that this is inevitable or normal in every or any Christian, but it is possible. And you can see how the confession has been wonderfully shaped by by sensitive pastoral experience. And yet the confession goes on to say that even in the difficulties that believers experience, that the Lord will not let them go. You can see in, in 18.3, the, the later part, yet they are never utterly destitute of that seed of God and life of faith, that love of Christ and the brethren, that sincerity of heart and conscience of duty, out of which by the operation of the Spirit, this assurance may in due time be revived and by which, in the meantime, they are supported from utter despair. So we may struggle and get into a pretty dark place, but God has promised to complete his work in us. And so in, in, in every situation like this where assurance is diminished or, or lost, we are ultimately kept from complete despair and time will be restored. It, lastly, just in a word or two, our time is just about gone, the, the, the fruit of assurance, because being fully assured is something that we should seek and cultivate, but it should do something in us. It produces something in us. Uh, let me use a very simple illustration that I, I've never forgotten whenever I heard uh, John Woodside share it. He was a, a referee in a football match between young boys. Um, uh, sort of upper primary age and there was one boy he noticed who was just running around and, and uh, not having a very good game he was running this way and that way and, and when by chance as it were he got the ball he seemed to be just paralyzed and unsure as to what to do with it and at half time this little boy appeared before John Woodside and he said please sir those are the days whenever you talk to people kindly please sir can you tell me what team I'm on and you thought oh, oh you heartbreaker but that lack of certainty had just made him ineffective. And you see, conversely, assurance is supposed to do something for us. It's supposed to make us effective. One of the criticisms made of this doctrine at the time of the Reformation by the Catholics, Roman Catholics, was that it would remove motivation to produce a Christian life, to pursue a Christian life. And I think that we, we know that there's a certain human logic to that, if we know how it's all going to end, why, why bother trying? But that's a human logic rather than a biblical logic, isn't it? Because biblical logic runs differently. Shall we sin so that grace will increase? By no means, Paul says. And so we see this in the confession, 18.3, as we go on. And therefore, it is the duty of everyone to give all diligence to make his calling and election sure. And that thereby his heart may be enlarged in peace and joy in the Holy Ghost, in love and thankfulness to God, and in strength and cheerfulness in the duties of obedience, the proper fruits of this assurance. So far is it from inclining men to looseness. Far from looseness, the confession says. This is designed to make us effective. Enlarged hearts, strength, cheerfulness, and so on. These things grow as we know and God wants us to know. 
Well, time's gone. I'm going to leave it there. But, but I thought I would just, as we finished, read a marvelous old hymn on assurance. I would sing it to you, but you wouldn't be able to drink your tea. It would be so terrible. Augustus Montague, top lady. Never, ever name a child. Augustus Montague, top lady. Although he was a great guy. And he wrote Rug of Ages, you might know. But he wrote this hymn about uh, assurance. A debtor to mercy alone, of covenant mercy I sing. Now, just as we read this, just think, where is he looking to for his assurance? Where is his hope? A debtor to mercy alone, of covenant mercy I sing. Nor fear with thy righteousness on my person and offering to bring. The terrors of law and of God with me can have nothing to do. My Saviour's obedience and blood hide all my transgressions from you. The work which his goodness began, the arm of his strength will complete. His promise is yea and amen and never was forfeited yet. Things future, nor things that are now, nor all things below or above can make him his purpose forego or sever my soul from his love. My name from the palms of his hands, eternity will not erase. Impressed on his heart it remains in marks of indelible grace. Yes, I to the end shall endure as sure as the earnest is given, more happy, but not more secure, the glorified spirits in heaven. Amen.